stand for God's words. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it and stay as a festival to the Lord as a lasting ordinance. Now, what day are we talking about? It's a Passover. Okay, now go down to verse 23. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top of the sides of the door frame, and he will pass over the door. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and to strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as He promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and He spared our homes when He struck down the Egyptians when the people bowed down in worship. And then go to uh, the next chapter, chapter 13, verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. And then going down to uh, verses 8 to 10 of chapter 13. And on that day, tell your son, I do this, the do this is keep the Passover, because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this Torah of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. This is God's word. You can be seated. How many of you are familiar with the uh, children's storybook Bible? Anyone read that thing? My daughter still, she's 13 this month. Um, And she still listens to that almost every night uh, before she goes to bed. Puts her to sleep, and I don't mind her going to sleep to that. But when you get to this part in the story, to the Exodus, I love how they put it. Um, They're through the the Red Sea. Um, They're on the end, on dry ground, on the other end, and... Then it says, God made a way when there was no way. That's, that's probably the story of the whole Bible. That is certainly the story of the Exodus. God finding a way when there was no way. Um, how many of you today, right now, as you think about that clause, where God made a way in your life when there was no way? Can you put it in 30 seconds? A story to tell of how God made a way when there was no way. Okay, what, five or six people this morning? I got a story to tell. I got a story to tell. Yeah, sure. Um, God made a way when um, I was really angry and he brought me out of it. Anybody else? Yeah. 
God made a way when there was no way. I'll tell you one thing I got to see this morning. Um, Dave Interpelli, do you guys know him? Dave would have no problem with me saying what, what, what I'm saying right now. I mean, they adopted uh, two daughters. Um, the oldest is now a teenager, and she's had a hard year. And uh, Dave was here this morning with a friend. Of course, his daughters were there too, and he said, the friend that I'm with today is my daughter's biological dad. And he said, six months ago, I wanted to kill him. I thought about killing him, and today, we are like your brothers. And I love him so much. And again, God making a way when there's no way. I could talk about my marriage 10 years ago when we were, my wife and I were going to get divorced. We thought about God. God made a way. There was no way. And it's not just in the practical things of life, but it's in the big things in life. It's the ultimate things in life. I mean, it's the fact that God is going to find a way even through death itself so that we can live forever in a new heavens and new earth. God makes a way when there is no way. And with, with, with this particular uh, story, Exodus, and what God's doing with his people, he's like, I want you to remember this event forever, how I did this and what I did. And that's why uh, look at 12 verse 14. I really do want your eyes to see these, these verses yourselves. This day you are to commemorate for the generations to come, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord, as a lasting ordinance. Go down to verse 24, chapter 12. Obey these instructions as a lasting order, order, ordinance for you and your descendants. And that, of course, are the instructions about keeping Passover. I'll go to chapter 13, verse 10. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time, year after year. Then he's talking about keeping Passover. So basically what God is saying is this. I want you to have a memorial day. A day every year where this event gets burned in your memory so that it can forever shape who you are and what you're becoming. And I don't know if you know much about the, the Passover, but this Memorial Day is centered around what? Anybody know? It's a lot like our Thanksgiving Day. So what's Thanksgiving centered around? Don't say football. <laughs> harvest. Harvest, but the harvest then gives expression into what? A meal. Exactly. I mean, you said it. Um, and, and the meal celebrates... The harvest, same with Passover. The, the, the centerpiece of this thing is a meal. Now, why a meal? 
I want us to ask these questions when we're reading the Bible. Not just like, no, that, oh, God did this, but why? Well, think about it. A meal means this is more than just something I need to know. This is something I need to actually participate in. A meal means that I can't just passively listen or, or, or passively watch. A meal means that I, I must personally, personally take it in. Because Exodus, God making a way when there is no way, it is not just something we know about. It's something we digest. We literally eat it. And that's why every Jew to this day, they are instructed that when they take Passover, that this is all about me. I was once a slave in Egypt. I was once in bondage to Pharaoh. I was the one that was under the blood, and the blood spared me, and the blood saved me. And, and I was the one who literally saw the waters part, and I walked through the waters. That's not just a story. That's my story. And I think this is the way the whole story gets fleshed into us because it literally needs to get fleshed into us and it needs to get fleshed out of our lives. It's not just something that's to be known. It's not just something to be listened to. It's, it's, it's literally something that we are to eat. It's something that we, we, we take into ourselves. We take it in so we can live it out and so we can cheer it on. And so God says, every year I want you to reenact this event through a meal. Because the meal itself, eating the meal, tells the story. What's the centerpiece of the meal? Anybody know? A lamb. A lamb. Okay, God gave specific instructions for how they were to do the lamb. What were they to do, first of all, with the lamb? Take it home. Every, every father, it was their, their responsibility, or the patriarch, the grandfather of the family, to get a lamb, a specific kind of lamb. What kind of lamb? A male lamb, one year old, without blemish. And then on the 10th day of that month, that month would be about the equivalent of our April, they were to get that perfect lamb and take it where? Yeah, into your home. Not into the barn out there, but into your home for how long? Four days. That lamb is to be a part of the family for four days, almost like our dog is today. Then on the 14th day, four days later, then what happens? This is all part of God's instruction in, in uh, Deuteronomy 16, Leviticus 23, other parts of Numbers. Fourteenth day then, the dad, maybe with his family or maybe just his sons, are to take it to the place where God puts his name. What place is that in the biblical story? First is the tabernacle and then, then it's the temple. They take it there. The priest, first of all, inspects the lamb to make sure of what? Yeah, it's unblemished. Um, and then the lamb is slaughtered. Who slaughters the lamb? Not the priest, either the dad or a family member. The blood is collected, thrown where? First Passover, where's the blood put? Door frames, where's the blood put? 
each one following. The altar. Why the altar? Our blood is collected. It's placed on the altar. Because the altar represents the place where God atones for our sin, where he covers us, so we can go into his presence. Okay, then the lamb was uh, put on a stick or a spick. In fact, by the time of Jesus, it had to be a wood one, which I find very interesting. It could be metal. And they'd carry the lamb back to their family. Uh, the lamb would be prepared. And then what? It was the centerpiece of the meal that night, Passover. They didn't just look at the lamb. They didn't just watch the lamb, but they ate it. In fact, uh, in Numbers 9, verse 12, it says, um, I want you to eat the lamb, and I want there to be no leftovers, not a, not a single leftover. And he says, do not also break any of its bones. Well, why can't the lamb have any of its lamb bones broken? Because this isn't the end of the story. And it's all going somewhere, and God wants this detail here as a clue. And at least that's part of it. Now, what I want us to see, though, is how participatory this is. This isn't just a doctrine that we know, but the lamb is to be taken in, first of all, into one's home for four days, and then it's to be eaten. Now, here's a question for you. What do you do when you don't have a temple anymore because it's been destroyed in your exile? And God instructs you, well, you're supposed to take these lambs to the temple, and the blood's supposed to be spilled there, and the priests are to instruct What do you do? What do you do? Well, this is what, what, what God's people did. It's they replaced the lamb at the meal with four cups of wine to represent the four promises of God in Exodus 6, 6 to 7. Now, why, why wine? This is great. <laughs> what does wine symbolize? First of all, it symbolizes blood. Okay, so this symbolizes whose blood? The lamb's blood. The one on the doorpost that spared us, that protected us. But the Bible also says in a few places that the life of a living creature is in the blood. So it doesn't only represent blood, but it also represents life because it's through the lamb's blood that we experience life. So this replaced the lamb by the time of Jesus. Um, even though the temple was rebuilt also, and so the wine and the lamb uh, became two things at, at a Passover meal. Uh, God also instructed two other things to, to be eaten on the night of Passover. What are they? First of all, it's the lamb, and what's the other two? Bitter herbs. Good. You can read about this in Numbers 9 and 11 or Exodus 12, verse 6. In, in Hebrew, the, the word bitter herb is the word marar. Uh, who, who is the one who call, said, call me Mara in the Bible? Does anybody remember her? Naomi, because her life was what? Bitter. So she said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. That's the root word for maror. Maror is probably a form of horseradish. Now, why maror? Why would God put that on the menu? Why? Okay. How about in the Exodus story? 
Okay, Exodus 1 verse 14, the whole Exodus story starts with they being Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they made the Hebrew lives marar, bitter, with harsh labor and slavery and all kinds of work in the fields. That's what Egypt is. I'm going to tell you right now, in the end, Egypt will always end with moral bitterness. Always. And we need to know that Egypt is more than a place. It's like some guy said to me this morning, boy, we live in Egypt today, don't we? And we do. I mean, Egypt in the Bible represents the world and being in the world and being entangled in the world. And that doesn't mean that the world always tastes bad. In fact, someone said to me, boy, um, I actually love horseradish. And, you know, we grow to like it, right? You have to acquire a taste for it. But once you acquire a taste for it, you begin to like Egypt. But in the end, I want the young people to hear this this morning. Because I didn't know this when I was young. Is that Egypt will always end in a place of bitterness. came up to me this morning and connected that whole thing of Egypt with this past Tuesday wanting to kill herself. I just say that right now to think, you know what, we don't really know who's sitting in this but what's the room? This is real stuff. These aren't just thoughts. They're real. What the Bible teaches is real. I love God because uh, living in Egypt really became a picture of sin for them. And, and, and the maror is, 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 is the bitterness that's caused by sin. And I, I think this is so God. Make, make that as one of your items because I, I want you to not only know that what life in Egypt was like, but I want, I want you to taste it. I want you to eat it because I want you to know what sin tastes like. In fact, Jewish fathers are no, known to like scoop just a big huge chunk of this onto a cracker when they give it to their kids when it's time to eat that stuff so that the tears literally <laughs> flow down their, their cheeks so he can say to that kid I want you to know this is what sin is that's what God wants us to know too okay so you have those two items what's the third item on a, on a Passover menu according to God's instructions it's bread that Deuteronomy 16, to 13, 16 verse 3, Deuteronomy 16 verse 3, God gives a specific name for this bread. What does he call it? It's the bread of what? No. Bread of affliction. He calls it the bread of affliction. Now, now why does he call it the bread of affliction? Well, maybe because in Egypt, that's what they were. They, they, they lived... Um, they, they were afflicted, but again, the story's not done, you guys. This is all moving somewhere. Okay, now what kind of bread is it? It's a specific kind of bread, right? It's unleavened bread, or what's another way of, of, of describing that? No yeast. No yeast. Now, I'm not a, I don't cook much. I, I don't know, um, you know, bread 101 that well, but this is what I do know. I know enough to say that yeast is a catalyzing agent that when you put it in a lump of dough, what it does is through the process of fermentation and decay, really, it causes the bread to rise, right? 
This is the kind of bread that we eat in our world. It's, it's, it's that fluffy, soft, airy bread, and that's the kind of bread that they ate in their world as well. But um, this one day of the, of the year, followed by seven more days, God says, I want a certain kind of bread. No yeast. Now, because of how yeast works in, in, in bread, um, it's really the, the agent of the cake you put into the bread to actually make it taste good. In fact, what they did in the ancient world is they always had a little lump of sourdough uh, bread next to the batch of dough, and they'd take the sourdough bread and put it in the, in the lump, and that, that would cause it to ferment and causing it to rise and all of that. Um, so think about this. God's saying the kind of bread that I want you to eat is no yeast. And yeast became this wonderful picture in that world of, 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 the, of decay and of sin. So I want the bread that you eat to be essentially sinless bread. No sin in the bread. And again, you have to be asking yourself, now, now why is God designing the meal this way? And then by the time you get to Jesus, there's more instructions about how they ate this bread on Passover. Uh, they, each person was given three crackers be on your plate. Why three? Well, uh, a lot of sages say because they represent our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And already by the time of Jesus, the host early in the meal would, would stand up and he'd take the middle one, the cracker that represents who? Isaac. Okay? And he'd break it in half, like this. And this would be dipped into the bitter herbs and eaten. But then he would say, okay, I want everyone to close their eyes right now. And hopefully everybody would close their eyes, especially the kids. And he'd go in the room and he'd hide this. And then at the very end of the Passover meal, he'd say, okay, kids, I have a little prize. Whoever can find this piece of bread, which I've hidden somewhere in the room, obviously he's not raising it because it's hidden, he says, gets the prize. And of course the kids would go look all over the place for the bread, and whoever found the bread would uh, come up to the host and give it to him, and they'd get the prize. And then the host would take this piece of bread, called the afikomen. It's the only Greek word that's made into a Jewish statement. Stunning. And I'm going to get to that in a second. Because they don't even know what it means. They just think it means dessert. Because it's the last thing you eat. It's broken, and each person gets a piece of this. And because it's the last thing eaten, it represents what? The most important thing eaten at night. The lamb. And he says, take this and eat it. All of it. Akikom, the thing that they're eating is in, in Greek means and he came. Now I don't, I don't know what kind of connections you're, you're making even as I'm talking this morning. Um, you could even go to a Jewish Passover and, and if a Jewish person is here today they're like, duh. I mean, this is what they do. What are the connections? Stop, that, stop acting like you're in church right now. You're in a gym. <laughs> I 
I mean, even the fact that this is, represents Isaac. Because you have to understand, to a Jewish person, uh, the reason why God passed over their homes that night was why? He saw the blood. Of what? Not to them. In their minds, they, they, a Jew thinks God saw the blood of Isaac. And they connect that story of Exodus, God passing over, to Genesis 22 when, God, when Abraham offered up his son. And so you even have this piece of bread that represents the sacrificial son broken without maror, or uh, not maror, without uh, the yeast, which means it's sinless. And then they call it the afikomen. And he came. Any other connections? You know, some people go there. I mean, the, the, the bread itself has, has stripes on it because of how it's cooked. You don't have that on normal bread. By his stripes we are? You. Any other connections? Here's what I want us to know is that this didn't just evolve out of, out of like Jewish culture. God designed this meal. In Leviticus 23, he says, these are my feasts. And he says, these are also to be sacred assemblies. In Hebrew, the word sacred assembly, I mean, this just blows me away, means a rehearsal. And so... What God wants them to do through these meals is pretty much do a dress rehearsal. For what? For the weddings. For for Messiah to come. And it just blows me away to think that for 1,500 years, every year, they were doing a a wedding rehearsal to rehearse the coming of the Lamb. In fact, John's whole gospel, when you get to the gospels, um, John's whole gospel can really be read as a greater exodus. Because he lays his book out just in the same order as Exodus. I mean, how is Jesus depicted? As the I am. I mean, all those I am statements. I am the good shepherd. I am living water. I am manna from heaven. In fact, uh, one time Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. And what does the audience do? He picked up stones to stone him. Why? What did he say? Moses, my name is what? I am. Okay, and then even the miracles in John's, in John's gospel are not called miracles, but they're called signs, because this is how God reveals himself in Exodus. It's through sign. And then John's gospel is also moving towards that climactic event, the Passover. In fact, I don't know if you see this in, in his gospel, but what day is Jesus crucified? In fact, the time when every family is slaughtering their lamb in the temple to take back Jesus is hanging on a cross. And John wants to put that little detail in there. And by the way, not a bone of his was broken. He's the Passover. 
And this is why Paul says, uh, for Christ, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7 and 8, for Christ our Passover lamb has been, been sacrificed. He says, therefore, let us keep the feast. What feast? Passover. And when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, do what? Passover. Do this Passover meal, but do it in remembrance of me. Do we? Do we do Passover? Jesus takes this meal and he says about this. It says in the Gospels, he took the bread and he broke it. He says, this broken bread is my body. This bread is me. All that this bread represents is me. I've been broken. He takes the cup of wine. He says, this wine, this is my blood. This is my blood. Not just know about it. Not just know that my body was broken. I want you to eat it. I want you to drink it. As a memorial day. And so this morning, that's what I want to do. I want to do it the way that Passover is supposed to be done. Passover is not supposed to be done in the church. Where's it supposed to be done? In homes. Uh, as what? As family. In fact, I think so much of this gets lost in the church today. And to be honest with you, when I when I think about just aspects of church and how we do church, I get really scared because we are eclipsing in the way we do church, the home, the father. Grandfather and the mother and the grandmother and their role in the home. In fact, listen to these verses, by the way. Um, I'm going to give you some verses that you can look up, um, and I want them read. Um, Exodus 12, 26 and 27. Can someone take that verse? Just say I got that one. I got it. Okay. Exodus 13, verse 8. Exodus 13, verse 14. Psalm 78, 5 and 6. Psalm 145, verse 4. Okay. Let's start with Exodus 12. Just stand where you are and read it as loud as you can. 12, 26, and 27. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you, then tell them, Okay, wait. When your children ask you, who? Who are the children asking? Their dad. Keep going. What does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. I love it. I hope we're doing things that inspire our kids to ask questions. Why are we doing this, Dad? Now, Dad can tell them. Not the pastor, not the elder, 
The dad, tell him! Okay, keep going. Uh, Exodus 13, verse 8. You shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Dad, tell your son! 13, verse 14. In days to come, if your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I, I so badly want to do things in such a way for the Lord and because of the Lord that it inspires my son to ask those kind of questions. I don't know if I am. I think we've lost sight of some things. We've, we, 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 we've turned this whole thing into a show with a stage and an audience and we just sit and we listen the sermons and we watch passively hopefully we don't have to even talk to anybody we come here we can get right in our car come here enjoy it go home it's not church psalm 78 5 and 6 Those are still good verses. <laughs> 78, 5, and 6, yep. No, I love that's that's enough for me. If, if there, there's your why. If you're asking, why does a dad have to do this? Why does a mother have to do this? Why does a grandma and a grandpa have to do this? Why can't it just be the pastor or the priest or the teacher in school? Why can't they just do it? And God gives the answer: Why? Why not? Because He wants to go from generation to generation to generation, and the way that's going to happen is in the home. Thank you. I'll do that one more time. The way that's going to happen is where? In the home. I'll say that. Okay, so imagine right now, you're accepting the family today. You get to know each other. Okay? Break this bread together. Tell stories of God's deliverance. Let me know. Who has Psalm 145? Did I give that one? Tom, 4 and 6. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. Listen to that, guys. One generation shouting to the other generation the great acts of God. You have a story to tell. Of how God made a way when there was no way? Do you have a story to tell of, of, of how God took you out of something? Do you have a story to tell of how God took you to himself? Do you have a story to tell of, of God's deliverance, of God's redemption in your life? We have to shout these things. Not just from a stage on a Sunday morning. Are you kidding? This goes from generation to another generation. And I'm going to apologize right now for catering too much to the wrong way. Church. We have to change this. It has to move into the home. And so, you guys are home today. 